Welcome to the Jerry T Podcast alongside one Dave Shields. Uh, we have a modern pro tour this weekend, and this is the first one in feels like forever. When was the last modern pro tour? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. No, just uh, top of your head. What do you what do you think? How long ago was it? Five years ago. God, that's a long Maybe time. Maybe more. Yeah, I'm very excited. It's been a long time since there's really been pro tours regularly, right? So we're getting some momentum with that to begin with. And the fact that this one's modern, the fact that modern's in a pretty exciting place right now, I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. So uh, you played some modern last weekend at the SCG thing. And... I watched a decent amount of that. I also like played a decent amount leading up to it. And then I was pretty excited for this pro tour coming up. And then all motivation I had to play modern this week, I found was just, it was just dead. Cause I was like, there's no point. I will just find out everything in a week, you know? Relatable. Um, Part of me is excited to try to figure things out, but at the same time, we did that for a few weeks and I'm a little bit out of a loss of exactly where to go. So I'm pretty excited to see how the Pro Tour shakes things up. I'm pretty excited to see what people come up with. I feel like there's a lot of unknowns as far as the best decks and the best cards, but at the same time, I feel like the metagame is in a pretty predictable place where there's clearly a public public enemy number one. Uh, so I, I feel like that's a pretty ripe target for some of the better deck builders. And I think people that put in the work are going to get rewarded. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I think you're starting to see some of the metagame shifting on Magic Online. We even have like a new deck popping up in this like blue black one ring control deck. But we'll get to that. First, I want to know if you were playing, what would you register? Oh my God, it's so hard. I want to say creativity so badly, and I've been trying to make creativity work through this scam meta, um, but I don't know that I could say it in good faith. Um, so I would be a little bit at a loss uh, for paper, what to play myself. On paper, you're a slight favorite. That So that is the interesting piece. Um, and I did have a you know, 500 record against it, and my record against it lifetime is above 500. I just feel like all of the, the, the ball's kind of in their court. If they want to make the matchup better, there's a lot of different things they can do. Um, and I feel like it, to try to attack scams specifically is a very difficult thing to do, and that makes it not very fun. What is so this? I, I would likely end up playing creativity, but begrudgingly. Okay. What is the uh, Lord of the Rings artifact? Stone of Eric? Oh, here. Uh, you, know what you know what I'm talking about? Okay. No so this, idea. This is a one mana legendary artifact. It's uncommon from Lord of the Rings. If a creature an opponent controls would die, exile instead. Two tap, sacrifice this, exile target player's graveyard, draw a card. Okay. So, like, not the best graveyard hate card like modern has so many good graveyard hate things but like this kind of like sticks around and does the graveyard hate thing too you know so it's not that bad i've seen this popping up in a lot of sideboards and it's just a shame that there are things like this that you can't necessarily play in creativity because it's an artifact you know you could, yes it's a trap don't put artifacts in your creativity deck yeah i mean you could it's just you're you're spinning the wheel for sure I guess if you just do one and you draw it, then, you know, then it's not that bad. But, uh, yeah, a little risky. 
Yeah. And, and like, listen, this is like why attacking this matchup is so difficult is like, there's all different things you can do that attack all their different plans. But like, you need to have Ragavan covered. You need to have Blood Moon covered. You got to cover the different scam draws. And there's just a lot of different angles they attack you from. So um, I don't know that there's a magic bullet or way to solve it necessarily. And if there was going to be like, say, a card that got printed in the next set to change things, I don't even know what it would be. I don't even know if it would be a threat or an answer or what. Exactly. And that is the problem. But yeah, this is the one card I've seen popping up in some sideboards where I'm like, okay, this doesn't look that bad. This is certainly better than trying to bring in like a Tormod script or whatever. But it's still it's still not great. And then also it's like legendary, so that's kind of weird too. But yeah. I don't know. It, it, there are just no good answers. Like you said, they're, they're coming at you from all angles. And, you know, they also have stuff like uh, Season Pyromancer to just refill them in the, the mid to late, you know? So the deck is very good. And I think if you forced me to choose, that is probably what I would play. One of the things that... I was sort of excited to try this week, but never did because again, I was just like, ah, well, someone else will figure it out. Was I saw uh, someone playing some of the land cyclers, which, you know, I already played the troll in Legacy, you know, like I'm kind of locked into liking those things at this point, you know, Uh, alongside like some persists. So like you have persists to either like reanimate your grief or reanimate a land cycler. You play fewer lands, more colored cards. You have extra cards to pitch, you know, like that version seemed kind of cool to me. I don't know if it'd be better than actually just being able to curve like one, two, three or whatever, but. I love it all. I think all of the land cyclers are awesome. And I think they've had impacts on all different formats in ways. I don't know that anybody saw coming. No, they just they're they do enough on the backside, right? Where it is it's worth it. Because you're effectively playing an ETB tap land, right? And there is a little bit of modality as far as like, do you want to spend your mana now or or later or whatever? Uh so it doesn't necessarily feel like that at all times. But yeah, just like having uh colored card count in your deck go up or having this random like six five chilling in your graveyard or a five mana draw three that you can draw in the mid game or something like these give a bunch of decks plenty of options that they didn't have before yeah and they help fix your mana they can go get basics against blood moon they can go get non-basics to help you cast things like leyline binding there's all different applications for them and yeah i think we're going to keep seeing those show up more and more so with you maybe registering creativity yourself, is there something that you would recommend some someone play that is not you? Like what, what do you think the best deck is? Uh, I think it's hard to say the best deck is anything that's not scam. Um, I think that that's pretty clearly public enemy number one. And I think that pretty much everybody at the tournament's either going to play scam or think they have a pretty reasonable scam matchup. Um, I think living end is pretty well positioned and a deck that we're going to see be pretty popular, especially at the pro tour specifically. I think that's going to be represent a higher percentage of the metagame than what we typically see in magic online or what have you. Um, and I think some of these one ring control decks are going to be, the pretty big craze. So it's how many free spells can I put in my one ring deck and what are the best free spells to play? Yeah. I feel like 
historically there hasn't been a tournament where or a pro tour where living end was really well positioned and this is probably the best one so like there hasn't really been an example of like oh yeah like all the pros could have played living end it would have been really good but they chose not to you know so like it just seems like a deck that pro tour players would just like shy away from in general do you think that's true or no it's kind of weird because I think in general, like at a super high level, yes, uh, decks that are tend to be ABC like that tend to be decks that pro players shy away from. But I think given how lean the decks got in and how efficient and powerful it is, I think it's very attractive. And I think especially for very competitive players that don't have a ton of modern experience that um, that's going to be a deck that is pretty reasonable to pick up and play a lot of. And I think it can surprisingly reward a lot of reps and practice. Yeah, I do too. I, I think, especially now, like you have so much more agency with the deck than you did before. Like the the old Jund ones, I don't know if you have any experience with these. A little bit. Uh, like the the Fulminator Mage, like Beast Within stuff. Like you played these, these weird like plan B, plan C sort of things, right? Yeah, we're not doing any of that anymore. No, I mean, the... the Living Index, before Grief at least, were very much just like, I just have to like resolve my thing, and that kind of feels bad because either it, it works or it doesn't, you know, and you're you're sort of at the mercy of like, what did your opponent bring to the table, right? But now you have Grief and Force and Subtlety, and I there's just so many small decisions that go in from like, you know, when do you cycle even? And yeah. I think that you can you can like pick up probably like a good five percentage points just from being like more proficient with that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those decks where playing it at 80 or 90 percent is pretty straightforward, but getting that last, you know, handful of percentage points is really difficult. And just from like, do you cast grief on turn one or do you wait until the turn you're going to go off? Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, do, do you need to hit their one drop? Do you even know if they're going to have Ragavan? Do they have Veil of Summer in their deck? There's all different types of variables, and I think that can really reward really tight play. Yeah, agreed. So I, I think that it might be a deck that people just don't even really consider, and maybe they should. But I think that if you are trying to sidestep the ring nonsense, then Tron might be a more obvious and like safer-looking choice, potentially. And we've seen modern pro tours previously where you know pro tour regulars are just like yeah screw it i'm i'm troning it up this pt and like they get rewarded you know so i think that tron is a deck that is on people's radar as actually just being a reasonable choice and is likely something that they could pick up yeah i would expect tron as well as the cabal coffers or board version of tron if you will to both be relatively popular decks um i think going over the top, doing something objectively really powerful is something that a lot of people are going to gravitate towards. Yeah, of those two, I I favor the Tron deck quite a bit, but I understand that the Coffers deck has some appeal, and honestly, its its numbers have looked pretty good too, like the matchup percentage stuff. Yeah, and listen, man, the black cards are just really good in modern. Yeah, which for a while was not true. It was like on the back of Thoughtseize Inquisition, and then there wasn't a whole lot else, and then it was like, okay, well, now we have Fatal Push, so we actually have 
one-man interaction. That's cool. And since then, I think the Arsenal has kind of gotten filled out quite a bit. And now they have a lot to offer, actually. Yeah. Shieldred is a magic card as well. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. So on the topic of these one-ring control decks, I mean, we kind of started seeing this in the Omnath decks, right? Where put some halflings in there, uh, get some some one rings, and this is just like another pile of card advantage to add to like your Omnaths and everything. And one ring works particularly well with Omnaths too. And then there were some blue-white control decks that were already built around solitude for the most part and they started putting some rings in their deck and then this blue black deck popped up while we were playing in baltimore that is just like 100 percent my speed which is going real hard on things like subtlety force of negation alongside the one ring and yeah the one ring being kind of all in on it and just playing like a bunch of pitch spells alongside of it like what do you make of that my first reaction when I saw the deck is this has to be a joke and it, it just didn't look real to me. And I, on further inspection and after playing some games against it, it, it's a real deck. And it, it reminds me a little bit of your legacy deck from last weekend, where it has a little bit of a tough time dealing with a resolved permanent. But if you don't get under them, they are incredibly punishing and can really snowball advantages. And it's hard to get under them too, because like the the card counterspell. Have, have you and I talked about this actually? I don't know if we have, but I hate the card counterspell. Oh, that's surprising to hear. Right? It's it it is weird. It's just it seems too slow to me in modern, which is kind of silly because it used to be like the backbone of every control deck that I ever played, right? But there are there are just games in modern, especially when you're on the draw. I think it's incredibly punishing, and people start like double spelling you relatively early and everything. And then I don't know. There are also decks where the the mana is a consideration, like when the Omnath decks were playing Counterspell, for example. It's like oh, I drew you know a, a dual land in a forest or whatever, and just like can't even cast this thing if I wanted to, right? But even if you can't cast it on turn two all the time, it's just like, ah, oh, sometimes it's just like a little too slow and it's pretty easy to actually get under those decks. And I think the best counterspell decks are typically the ones that are using it to protect like one mana creatures. And I, I didn't know what it would take for me to want to play like a control style deck. But uh, the thing that makes counterspell very good in my eyes is now having eight zero mana pieces of interaction, you know? Yeah, as well as some island cycling cards to help fix your mana a little bit, um, as well as having a flash threat like Orcish Bowmasters to spend your mana on if you leave Counterspell up and they try to tempo you. I think there's a lot going for it. Yeah, and it, it does sort of look like this weird mishmash pile, right? Because I think the 40-card the version of the deck looks really good, where it's like, you know, ring, a pitch spell, some Counterspell, some removal spells... But it's like, no, we, we have to play 60, so what do we fill it out with? And it's like, oh, I guess get some random like Bowmasters in there, some some Shieldreds, some Sauron's Ransoms, just like random cards that you wouldn't necessarily want to play otherwise, but they all kind of have their spot, you know? Yeah. The Sauron's Ransom is the one that I personally find pretty offensive. I kind of refuse to believe that that card can be playable in this format. Um 
And that, that's coming from somebody who's been trying to make shadow prophecy work for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I kind of think if there's a team out there that's working on this deck that finds a way to find the same kind of instant speed, attrition card in place of Sauron's Ransom that fits, um, I think they're going to be onto something. That's certainly the place that I would start, but I don't know that one's out there. I don't, I don't think it's unplayable, uh, you know, three mana divination with some upside, some downside, you know, but it does, it, it pitches both ways. If you end up, you know, wanting to do like grief and force negation stuff, which is cool. Three mana is not the worst. Uh, I've, I've played painful truths before, and I'm sure the painful truths is even like, you know, cashed some, some modern events recently, you know, like the card is, definitely not completely outmoded or anything. And I think that the way the blue black decks are built specifically, you really do need to find a ring or at least have like a very good tempo draw. And this is just like a thing that kind of gets you closer, which is, is fine. It doesn't like solve all the issues. And I, I think that the games where you draw like two ransoms and no ring are just like pretty bad. You know, your deck is definitely not operating at full capacity or whatever, but I think it's okay. I think it's serviceable. The, the thing that I did when I was messing around with Blue Black was try Archmage's Charm instead. And I do think that there is a lot of rationale for not only playing the first basic swamp, but also the second for uh, Blood Moon considerations. And then you're kind of priced into playing like another copy of Sunken Ruins or whatever. And I, I think that that's fine. That all works out. The downside is that it's worse against Bowmaster, whereas Soren's Ransom doesn't actually draw you cards or anything. But if you want to go that route, if you want to find an alternative, Archmage's Charm is a thing. It's probably the best you can do, at least offhand. Um, how much factor fiction have you played in your life? A lot. How do you feel about the little mini game? in Factor Fiction or Sauron's Ransom here? I, fr from, a, from a game design perspective, I typically don't like it, at least for formats that are supposed to be like new player or casual friendly, and I don't think that Modern really fits that bill. But the problem with like Factor Fiction in Standard, and one of the reasons why it was so kind of busted, was that people generally lacked a fundamental fundamental in understanding of like what your deck was supposed to be doing. It was like, they, they barely understood what their own deck was supposed to be doing. Right. And now they are forced to buy into this thing where they have to like now rate the value of your cards or whatever. And it seems like a very difficult thing to do. Like you're asking a lot of a random player, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think this one is even more interesting given that there's face-down piles. So there's even another element to it. And I'm very much looking forward to some hero lines here with somebody taking the land or some card that's not necessarily what you're looking for and putting it face-down and really getting someone. Yeah, so. I already... I, I went back and watched some VODs that happened when uh, like the blue-black decks started taking off and people started trying it out and stuff. And I've already seen some just like absolutely bizarre Sauron's Ransom piles and also like selections from people too. Yeah, well, and it's one thing to do it in a Magic Online tournament or a lower stakes event, but doing it in the future match of a Pro Tour where the stakes are as high as they are, um, that would definitely be the middle square on my bingo sheet for watching the Pro <laughs> Tour this weekend. It's just like someone gets got 
Yeah. Yeah. Or what, what do you think is more likely someone gets got or like they play themselves, you know? I, I think I want to say play themselves is probably more likely. Um, but given how much this deck is really digging for the ring, I really do think it creates like interesting opportunities where I think pro players are going to be able to put people in a pinch a lot better than your average magic online player. And especially with the open deck lists, everyone's going to be aware of what each other are doing. So um, I think the times are ripe for some really exciting piles. Yeah, I I can totally imagine, you know, you're you're sitting down against someone who is good. You you yourself are like maybe good. You have a pretty good understanding of you know the format, the decks that each player is playing, whatever. And you're like Sauron's ransom. They're they're they really need a ring, right? You know they need a ring, and it's like the pile is like two rings and like two spells or whatever. So you just get to put a ring by itself face up, and three cards face down or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, like that might feel good because you get like the moral victory, but then it's just like, well, then they still get the card that they wanted. So I don't know. Yeah, I think the more exciting one is they really need a ring and you might give them a spell and two lands face up and the land face down or something of that nature. Yeah. yeah. And you really get them there. Yeah, I like that better. Yours is yours is better than mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we we have this this blue black deck. Uh, how how much stock do you think people are going to put into this thing? So I think that, yeah, the question is is it is it up to the hype or what have you? My instinct is a good amount of people are going to play it at the PT. I would say five to seven percent of the field um, will play some amount of counter spell one ring shieldred style deck. Um, my instinct is it's hype, though. Um, I don't know that this deck's going to be around in a few months in the format in general, and my instinct says it's not. You think the the deck itself is bad, the shell is bad, or people are going to find better versions, or what? I, I think it might be a little bit inbred as far as like where you know we're we're hyper indexing on the current state of the metagame. Um, I feel like it's relatively exploitable, but I could be wrong. It, it does have a ridiculously high ceiling as far as power level goes. Um, and typically decks with a lot of free cards that cheat on mana like this um, tend to perform a lot better than what they look like on paper. So um, I'm reluctant and hesitant in my prediction, but that's where I am. Yeah, this is one of those decks where you can play matches against them and it's just like nothing I did came even close to mattering because they just have like the perfect answer and like all their answers are like zero mana or whatever. Like yeah. this, this deck does have pretty high free win potential, you know, but I do think that they are very, very much all in on the ring and that is probably the biggest weakness of it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, they have a lot of cards like Murktide, Children, these are cards that like even decks that are good against them on paper, if they really put you to the test. And um, I could see some games where like, you know, you just randomly play a Shieldred and most of the time it's not supposed to be good enough, but you don't have a great hand and it just randomly steals games. Yeah, I can see that too, especially in the post-board games where, you know, people may over sideboard against one portion of your deck or the other. Uh in general, I haven't liked the Murktide specifically in this deck, but 
you know, they do give you another angle of attack and let the the bowmaster damage actually add up and be meaningful and stuff. So I get it. I understand why it's there. You need something else to do. I just wish it was something that was a little bit more cohesive with your plan A. Yeah, I would agree. And um, I think in the post board games when things get a lot more grindy, they're probably going to make a little bit more sense there. But. So I wonder if there's a better way to go about this. Like, can you do ring, free spells, and then, I don't know, I'm like looking at the breach decks. Like, obviously, there's just not a lot of blue cards here. But do you know what I mean? Just like something where the ring is your best card by far, but you are still setting up other things. And not just like, oh, well, I guess I have like a random Murktide in my deck or whatever. It's just, you know, it's, a lot of your other cards are contributing towards the same goal. Yeah, I think the reason, like, at least the blue cards all seem so appealing to me is, like, if people do gravitate towards some of the big mana strategies, which was at my first instinct when the One Ring started getting big, um, Force Negation and Subtlety and Counterspell are some of the best cards possible against those matchups. Yeah, I agree with that. So um, I think that this fights the kind of arms race that the One Ring creates, I think, in a pretty effective way. Yeah, I agree with that. And then there are, you know, matchups like the the four-color deck, which I I think a lot of what we're talking about, the various ring decks showing up, you, you said, you, you know, 5 to 7%, something like that. Like, where do you think that metagame percentage is going to come from? I think it's going to be people who were maybe previously thinking about playing something like Omnath would then gravitate towards this deck. But... I still think that Omnath is going to be present. And then if you're fighting like these ring mid-range battles, I mean, I, I like the one that has access to all the free spells instead of the one with, you know, the Omnaths and stuff. Yeah, I would agree. So obviously you have to account for Delighted Halfling to some degree, but I think that's pretty easily accomplished. I mean, you have Fatal Pushes already, and it's not like that card is fully dead because it can always kill an Omnath, and then there are also just games where maybe they don't draw it. I do think if this blue-black deck is something you want to beat, Delighted Halfling is a pretty reasonable place to start. But even with that, like, cards like Subtlety, right? Even if it's uncounterable, there's still ways to get around it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I certainly saw a, a lot of that happening, and it's like, okay, well, maybe... They have halfling and that shuts off half of your interaction. Well, maybe, you know, you just end up winning the ring battle or whatever and just get out in front of them. And I don't know, stuff like Shieldred can still pose a problem. So there's still plenty of ways to victory, even if you're, you know, behind on the one, two. Yeah. I think high level you're spot on with the first 40 cards in this deck is a pretty real core. And I definitely think there's something there. And I wouldn't be shocked to see some teams put together lists that are 10 to 20 cards different than anything we've seen so far. Yeah, I mean, like, what if black is not the right color? Certainly my first instinct and reaction, but it does seem to mesh relatively well on looking at it further, but... Well, I saw some uh, that were, like, Ragavan iteration, Unholy Heat type of stuff, and... The big problem to me with that one was how do you actually get rid of your rings? And, like, what are you doing? Like, Shieldred just, like, solves all the problems. It's just baked in. 
Yep. Which is nice, but I'm sure you can come up with a solution to that. And then it's like, well, yes, Ragavan lines up poorly against the Bowmaster aspect of the other side of it. But like in a vacuum, I like the Ragavan iteration deck better. Yeah, I think on paper, it's definitely a better deck. It's, and it's a question of, is, does it line up better against the current metagame? Yeah, there's stuff like Fire Ice too. Like Fire Ice iteration being gold cards means that you could also play Fury if you wanted to. Yeah, and I think the the format in general is trending pretty far away from Fury right now, but that might be something that people are able to take advantage of. Yeah, and I was thinking more of like as as a sideboard card because I I do agree with that. Like it's trending away from Fury for a reason. There just aren't that many small creatures to kill, and part of that has to do with just the fact that Bowmaster exists. Yeah, between Ren and Six, Bowmaster, and Fury, it's not a good time to be playing small creatures. Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> there you sent me this this list uh from TSB Yendrick, who uh I know as uh Magic Online control player, and then I briefly went back and looked at their history and yeah, it was just all blue decks. Just all blue decks. And their list was basically blue white control, but uh, you know, doing the ring stuff and then with Lorien revealed, and then because you're going so hard on all of that stuff, now there are more copies of Force Negation, more copies of Subtlety, but then you still have the Four Solitudes too. And that gives you a little bit of a better mix of free spells to go along with your rings. Uh, it's not just like, oh, my things like only interact on the stack, right? So I kind of like this because, you know, Prismatic Ending instead of Fatal Push, like that's a, a pretty decent upgrade. You have Teferi uh, as a card that is just good, but also is a way to reset the ring if you need to. You have Supreme Verdict as a sweeper, which is gold card that pitches both ways. You play Leyline Binding for very low opportunity cost, and then you just get to free roll a couple, a couple copies of Omnath, which basically functions as the the shield grid in this list, like making sure the ring doesn't kill you. So. I don't know. How, how do you feel about this deck overall? Uh, I think the Omnaths are the weakest part of it, um, but maybe a necessary evil. Um, I do really like this list, and I played against him in a challenge over the weekend, and I got absolutely clowned on by him. Um, so shout out to him on playing circles around me. But I think Leyline Binding is the big appeal of this list and the, the, the reason to play some of the white cards. I think having a flash answer that's as generic as... Leyline Binding is, and um, having it, you know, in the mid to late game, let you two spell really easily, letting it answer both your opponent's one rings as well as your own. I think there's a lot going for it. Um, I also like the really cute binding your own, or I, I don't think you can. Can you not binding your own permanents? No, you can't. Uh, opponent. Yeah, opponent. So, but being able to answer opposing Leyline Bindings to kind of protect your one rings from them, I think there's that card just has a lot going for it. So. Uh, this is a place that I would look to, and if I was playing uh, this weekend, this is a deck I would certainly be trying. Yeah, and I, I think that things like Supreme Verdict to clear up all the, you know, Delighted Halflings, you have Leyline Binding to answer opposing rings, like, this seems like you are covered in a lot of different ways against ring mirrors also. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's favored my instinct against the blue-black deck as much, but I think this is more of like a generically powerful deck that has more good answers to nonsense. 
So in like a less predictable metagame, my instinct would be this is a better place to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, blue-black can usually have a pretty good shot against blue-white because they're always going to have access to like discard out of the sideboard or whatever to get a little bit of an edge there. But against an open field, I certainly like this a lot more because it, it feels like you just have more generic answers to things. Yeah. Yeah, I think like the the downfall from having to make your shield reds be Omnaths is probably the biggest loss here. Yeah, I it's not that bad though, you know. And and Omnath is still a card that like double pitches, so it's true. And I I do like the fact that there's only the two copies. You know, I'm not trying to go super hard on this card because who is this card really good against right now? It is mostly there just as a you know, ring five and six, like, oh, I don't have anything better to do, but also the life gain to offset it. So, I, yeah, I think it's a necessarily useful, and I think that two is the right amount. Yeah, Teferi's, I think, one of the other interesting cards, which is a card in general and modern that I'm pretty low on right now. Um, but it, it creates, like, an interesting dynamic where if you can ever get one in play, it's a pretty disastrous thing for your opponent to deal with, but it lines up pretty poorly against Bowmasters and the likes. So, how do you feel about Teferi right now? I generally like the card a lot, but then in watching how a lot of the games play out with yeah, the flash stuff and the the free stuff and hearing you talk about your experience like playing in living ends with Teferi in your deck, like Teferi used to just be like one of the best possible cards, right? But now you just play it and it just gets like forced and you lose immediately or whatever. It's like, you just have to wait to play it until like turn five or something. So like then, then how good is it actually? But just generically as a fine utility card, I think it is good. Uh, Yendrick is playing three and I think that that's completely fine. Whereas previously people would just be like, you know, slam dunk, like, why aren't you playing four of this or whatever? But I think showing a little, little restraint at this point is, correct you know it's just not the card that you want all the time but it's good to have access to yeah it's a card i'm pretty low on out of the creativity side but having the option to pitch it to all your different elementals or force of negation and you know play it when it lines up well i think makes a lot of sense it's it's pretty good curve into the ring also it does demand an answer yeah because it's just like oh maybe they're set up for this thing with a counterspell or whatever, but now they need like back-to-back things. And I, I think that's pretty good, but not that it's necessary. It's just nice. Uh, and then obviously white sideboard cards in modern historically are pretty good. Like sunset revelry, rest in peace, uh, things like Dovin's veto, like the, the white sideboard cards seem quite good to me. Uh, yeah. The white sideboard cards in modern historically always fantastic so if if the formats a lot of these bigger mana decks and some of these one ring decks as well as scam how do you think do you think there's going to be a way for people to exploit that do you expect somebody to kind of attack it and how would you attack it i don't think you can attack those two decks specifically with one ring decks you know uh i think that scam generically is pretty well set up to beat decks that are trying to play four mana sorceries and so are things like Tron and so are things like Living End. Like, I, I think that you can tune these decks to be good against those sorts of things, although you may have to pick a lane. It's just like, well, I'm going to be 
better against Tron than I am against Scam. Um, but the appeal here is that I think that this sort of blue-white control deck is good against the field at large and hoping that that carries you enough. Whereas if if you told me I was going to play against like Scam and Tron all day, like I would just, I would not play this. I'd probably just play Scam or something. Can't beat him, join him. Yeah, I mean, like, what what else are you supposed to do? Like, I think from the the numbers matrix I saw, it was like hardened scales was the best thing against scam, and it's like I'm not playing that. <laughs> so, hammer time has largely been pushed out of the metagame, and that was for a long time the aggro deck that kind of kept some of these other things in check. Do you think there's an opportunity to go under them? Uh. I mean, it's tough. Like you're, you don't have a ton of one toughness creatures, so you're not overly vulnerable to Bowmaster, but you're still pretty vulnerable to Fury. So I don't know. It seems seems difficult. It's probably not where I would start. I might try it at some point just to see, but it doesn't. Yeah, I know. A lot of people are talking about burn potentially being well positioned, which is something I'm always pretty skeptical of. Um, well, but. Yendrick has Sunset Revelry in their sideboard, like two copies. Like that is that is definitely respecting burn, and I I appreciate that. I applaud that. I think far too often people just write it off, even though it's a thing that like people can play and will. And I think that burn looks well positioned on paper but again like looking at the results from tournaments and stuff it's like well if it was well positioned it would be doing better I would think and it's I don't know kind of just getting beat up yeah that's my instinct as well I do think Urza Saga is a card that lines up pretty well against a few of these decks but um, like specifically the blue black deck like Urza Saga seems pretty good against them um, but I don't know that there's any really great Urza Saga decks out there right now. Breach. And that, yeah, if you're Corey Baumeister, maybe Breach is definitely where you want to be, but um, outside of Corey, I haven't seen Breach perform particularly well. Uh, I saw his name pop up in last weekend's events. Played in some challenge. Let me see if I can find it. It's like, I don't know, bonk something. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you remember? Bonk 01, I think, is his. Uh, I think he top 16 the challenge on Saturday. Yeah, I couldn't remember if it was top 8 or top 16, but um, scrolling down. Not, yeah, not seeing it in the top 8. So I don't know. Top sixteen, yeah, a little, little disappointing. If that's the case for Corey, we expect better of you, man. Come on. But not a deck that I think. I, I don't know. I would be surprised if Breach was well represented or did well. Um, See, here's the thing. With these ring decks, and especially when people are turning into things like big mana to try and beat you. I think being the ring deck or maybe even not a ring deck, but just something that is working to assemble a combo kill is a pretty good place to be. And I think that Breach does that pretty well. I think that things like 
uh, Urza Thopter Sword. When when I was playing Omnath, I ran into that a couple times, and it's just like it's hard. You know, you can you can like deal with their stuff for a little bit, but eventually they get a window of like a couple turns where you've kind of like ground them down or whatever. Where if they assemble their thing, there's just like not a whole lot you can do. And it, in a sense, they are then going over the top of you, right? There's not a whole lot of ways for you to like stop that or anything. So Thopter, yeah. Thopter was kind of like a backdoor option for me, but Breach just seems like a, a better version of that stuff. Yeah, I think the real key is the fact that their combo can kill through the protection trigger on the one ring. So you can definitely steal some games there. Yeah. Okay, Bonk 101, 11th place. Disappointing. So what's that? Five and two. Yeah. Or or six and two. I don't know. One at least one of the challenges I looked at had eight rounds in the Swiss, which I was pretty impressed by. People love modern. Yeah. Well, they should. It's a good format. Yeah. I mean, it's it's maybe getting worse, but <laughs> for, for for like two years, it was a really good format. Yeah, scams taking away everybody's fun. No, I'm I'm fine with scam existing. Scam scam's a good best deck. Yeah, agree to disagree. Wait, would you would you think that like creativity is a good best deck? Um, so I think my big issue with best decks in general is I, I think when the best deck in the format is something that there is clear things to do against them, it, it's really good for magic. Yes. And one of the really big things I struggle with is if scam is the best deck in the format, no matter what I'm playing, I just don't know what to add to my sideboard. Yeah, but creativity has the same problem, except it's a little bit, uh, little, little bit more manipulative or deceptive, I guess. Yeah, I think deceptive. I think a lot of people thought they knew what to add to their sideboards to be better against creativity, and they were typically wrong. Like all the folks who confidently rolled out an EE for zero against you. Yeah, licking my chops every time that happened. Yeah, you're just like, thank you. Oh, yeah, I have a chance. Yeah, uh, and I, I think the biggest problem I have is like those ten to twenty percent of the games against scam where they're just like kind of non games, and those are just going to happen. Um, but that represents just and listen, the games against scam when that doesn't happen are usually really interesting, really dynamic, and I think are really good. But there's just slightly too many non games, whether it's a Blood Moon game or a Turn One scam or they aggressively mulligan for it and don't find it. And there's just like a tiny bit too many non-games for me to really say I'm happy with it being the best deck. Here's the secret. Every deck in Modern has those games. Yeah. That is I, not a, that's not a scam exclusive thing. I know what you're saying. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel good, but that that's just the price of admission here, you know? And listen, in a format like Legacy or Vintage, where that's a little bit more upfront and honest and what I'm signing up for, I'm more okay with it. But at least historically in Modern, I got this illusion of being able to play my cards out and do my thing. And that's been taken away from me. Look, the, the format got worse when they printed a bunch of zero mana cards. I, I will say that. <laughs> uh, I liked it quite a bit before that, but... Yeah, um, it just changes the game too much, you know. I so I definitely agree, but scam at its core is just like a Tarmogoyf deck, and I think that that is good to have as a best deck. It's not like it's it's frustrating to some degree, but it's not like when Dredge is the best deck or whatever, you know. 
Well, I would agree, but I think Dredge being the best deck is a pretty low bar for a format. We can do better. We, we can do better. And yeah, I mean, I, I wish that uh, Scam minus free cards was the best deck. Like, that would be a great place to be. Yeah. Or if the evoke, if the wording on evoke was just slightly different. Yeah. So. I wonder. I wonder if if they had a choice, would they? Because like evoke was just right there, you know. Yeah, and grief's probably the only one it really matters for. But the fact that they can take my answer to their grief before they yeah bring it back is just yeah. so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder if they. If they if they could go back, would they have just like used evoke because it was there, or would they have done it where it just like no, it just becomes an unmask or whatever? Yeah, or just like the triggers are forced go on the stack in a certain order so that you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, at least make them like shove before they they unmask you. you yeah, know? like the fury at least that's like an interesting thing where you know sometimes they can get got as well, right? But. Um, the grief lines are usually like, listen, if you have the turn one grief scam, you just do it. Right. Uh, so. Oh, it was even better playing it with reanimate. Yeah, that's true. It's like, what are you, you going to do? I had, I had people just like, uh, I guess I swords it, you know? And it's like, okay, cool. I didn't even have reanimate. You know, it's just like, it's just so bad all around. Yeah. And at least in legacy, like it's more interesting to do it on turn one because well, one, your opponent could just kill you on turn one. So you kind of have to do it. Yeah. But also... You don't need to wait and see if you draw the reanimate. If you draw the reanimate later, you can just cast it. Right. So. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, I, I loved my legacy deck so much. Yeah. And I've definitely done that with the leyline binding in modern, right? Where I get griefed, usually not on turn one, usually, obviously, but in the mid game. And, you know, I, I'm kind of just priced into leyline binding it. Yeah. Cause like, what, what else are you going to do? And like, what does it mean that they're like now griefing you on this random turn or whatever? It's just like, uh, I just like have to do this. Yeah. So I don't hate those. It's the turn one grief lines that are usually the most frustrating. And then for me, the blood moon ones, but I'll, I'll accept those as non games because you know, that's, that's at least something more upfront that I signed up for in the likes. Yeah. I mean, that's just been a thing in modern for forever. Right. It's like, you know that there's going to be 10 to 15% of the decks are going to have blood moon in them. And you need to be able to deal with that somehow with your deck. Yeah. I, I think that's fine. Right. I think that adds interesting deck building choices and the likes. Um, but the tension that scam puts on you from all of those angles, I find pretty frustrating. I think scams always going to be one of those decks where like, how bad can their worst matchup really be? Yeah. And I don't know, like the, at the same time, their, their ceiling is pretty high because of the scam draws, but it's not going to come together every time. And it ends up evening out over a large sample size to the point where their matchups are a lot of 55%. You know, it is very Jund like because all the other decks in modern are doing like pretty busted things too. Yeah. So it, it looks better on paper than it feels when you sit down to play. But I don't know from like bird's eye view. Uh, watching people playing in events and like watching you play creativity against scam, like the vast majority of games that you played looked pretty like fun and interactive. But I guess 
it is possible that I just like blinked and missed some of the actual scam games, you know, but yeah, the ones that weren't fun didn't last very long. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so the pro tour is open deckless and I actually think that puts out interesting tension. I typically think the amount of impact and influence open deckless has on a tournament is like overstated. Same. But I do think I do think with scam specifically, it's really interesting because whether or not you should aggressively mulligan for a scam draw or keep a hand that's like maybe slightly below average and you can do better, but has turn one Ragavan is super interesting if you know you're playing against a matchup like Tron where they don't have answers to turn one Ragavan. Right. And they they are just priced into aggressively mulliganing for Tron all the time anyway. So open decklist doesn't help them at all, right? Correct. But I do think decks that are playing specifically Ragavan, that also would mulligan a lot, specifically Scam. I think that open deck list actually helps them quite a bit. Yeah, I do too. And that, that was not a thing that I really thought about because I, I didn't have a reason to have to consider it or whatever. But that does make a lot of sense. And I agree with you. And I don't know, there there is like the Tarmogoyf Jun deck sort of thing where it's like half your deck is good against one set of opponents half the deck is good against the other or whatever and like open deck list helps you a little bit but with with scam i think it's even more dramatic you know it's like you still have like terminates pushes whatever but knowing what part of your deck like the ragavan stuff the scam stuff the blood moon stuff that you need to go for is super important yeah like i think like specifically seven card hand on the draw slightly below average with turn one ragavan would just be like a pretty close to immediate mulligan in a swiss event but if you know you're against tron specifically like ragavan's your best card and they don't have an answer to it like probably a keep yeah i mean i was already gonna play scam if i was playing like you don't need to twist my arm (laughs) (laughs) yeah so Scam, one ring, or the field? Uh that that's a good question. I think maybe the ring, which is like kind of weird to say. I don't know. It's just like given given all the stuff that I know about scam and how the games play out, I feel like over a large sample size, they are going to eventually run afoul of the ring decks that are a little bit more robust, have a little bit more of a powerful top end, have some things that are are pretty good against specifically like the scam matchup. You know, I think if if people are doing their homework, building their decks right, playing the scam matchup a decent amount, they should be able to figure out a way to to switch around like the coin flip matchup, you know? Yeah. I'll tell you from a fan perspective, I'm aggressively cheering for the field here. Yeah, and so what What I would cheer for and what I think is going to win are, are different things, but I don't know. Like, even if the ring decks do well, I'm specifically thinking about, like, blue ring decks, then I would imagine it's coming off the back of some innovation, and I, I definitely want to see that. Like, that is the thing that I would cheer for most, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I think like th- if we're just like picking a horse for the event, I would expect the ring decks to have a pretty sizable portion of the metagame larger than Scam or the Field. So yeah. I think yeah. it's logically you, a good if you choice. Group them all together, absolutely. Yeah. So then I think like, hey, maybe we could get a little bit more dynamic with our 
hypothetical here and split the big mana scam deck, or sorry, the big mana one ring decks away from the fair one ring decks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was rooting for a fair one ring decks. Yeah. And I think then we're going to get into a more accurate representation of like each of those representing, you know, somewhere around 20% of the field. Um, that's probably a little high for the big mana decks, but. Do you remember where we were at with our hypothetical a few weeks back on what percentage of the Pro Tour is going to be represented by we're going to have the one ring in their deck? Well, you were saying like 70 or something. I think it's it's probably lower than that now. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I went quite that high, but um, yeah, Oof. half is is half a reasonable line. Would you would you take the under or over on half? So Yogmoth has mostly cut the ring, which I don't necessarily agree with, but whatever. I, I trust the Yog lifers. There are things like Burn and Living Ends that could see kind of like last minute surges in popularity. Uh, Rhinos is sort of like a, a dark horse choice, which is like another deck I think could probably just play the ring, but they don't. There are things like Shadow, which maybe people could show up with, but that's just like a really bad scam deck. And then scam, I think, which is finally now getting the rightful amount of like popularity and backing and fear behind it. So th there are enough things where I'm just like, I don't know, the ring, the ring could be sub 50%. I, I could very easily see that. Yeah. I think right around 50% is a pretty good line. And I would, I could see going on either side of it. I think there's going to be some amount of people that still just show up with Merc types. That's just what they do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you played against Merktide once in in uh, Cincinnati, right? So yeah, it was great. Didn't have to worry about the ring. Didn't have to worry about Bowmasters or getting scammed or like Underworld Breach or anything. Just, yeah, no nonsense. Just honest, good, honest creatures and counter spells. Yeah, just fair, straight up. So yeah. I th I think uh, I think I would take the under, but again, if the field is like. 200 players and some change it all just depends on like what two or three teams bring you know that's just gonna sway the numbers so much where it's like well if three teams decide that you know there's some non-ring deck that they decide to play then suddenly the number's like 40 percent or whatever yeah it's there are definitely a lot of big swings and the the pro tour fields being smaller than historical averages as well as i feel like the teams for the pro tours that are doing the prep work getting larger than they typically were yeah um, which is weird yeah super weird field is field is smaller but let's double the size of our team and then like you watch the coverage and all you hear about in the later rounds is like the team kills and it's like well yeah everyone's on the same team so yeah <laughs> They should they should just split it for coverage purposes anyway. Just so there's not like 20 people playing like the same Rakdos mid-range deck or whatever. Just to make things more interesting. Yeah, I would agree. And it would be pretty appealing to me to just, you know, say fuck them and pick a small team for an event like this, especially given the options of being able to prepare online. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I don't know why folks stick with like the 25 player teams. I don't know why they think that that is like a good viable strategy like certainly if you're just there for the times hanging out with your friends or whatever i get why you know you're these are your 24 closest friends or whatever that makes sense that you'd want to hang out with them but 
from a tournament perspective, it's it's pretty silly that you're just 10% of the field. Yeah, and like at least from my experience, I don't actually think that necessarily breeds the best ideas. I, I think having a smaller, closer-knit group with more open and frequent communication is at least what worked better for me historically. Not that this was something I was ever that good at to begin with. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you get to a team of 25 people, it's like not everyone is pulling the same amount of weight, almost certainly. And, you know, that can be fine. That's okay. But uh, the the thing that you ran by me was like the initial split up into two teams and then converge at some point. Yeah, I really like the idea of breaking out and with different tasks or working on different ideas and not necessarily sharing information for short periods of time and then coming back together. And, you know, that's usually a good litmus test for me of like, if we come to similar conclusions, then we're onto something. So um, like leading up to an event like this, let's say there's, you know, eight or 10 of us working on a deck and we're trying to figure out a sideboard strategy for a specific matchup. I really like the idea of splitting up five and five going and, you know, coming up with an approach or a sideboard or w- whatever the idea is it needs to be pretty specific and not sharing information for a day or two. And then coming back together and seeing, did we come to the same conclusions? And I think that's a good litmus test of, are, are you onto something or not? Yeah, I do too. I think it's fantastic. And I wish that it was something that we did in teams previous. Yeah, I think it's fun too, right? Um, sometimes we would go off and come back and we just came to wildly different conclusions and we're like, well, shit, we need to go back to try that again because clearly one of us is at least way off, maybe both yeah. of us. Yep. And especially when you have like, groups of people it's just like oh like one of the groups is way off too you know it's not even just like oh one person had a bad idea or whatever it's just like oh yeah yeah like you you know this from preparing for a whole bunch of these events it's really easy for ideas to get really inbred and especially when there's like one or two really good players on a team that are maybe like better way better than the average player people tend to just like gravitate towards what they say or their ideas to no fault of them um, so that, that can be like a dangerous phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's kind of what I said with like people pulling their weight. It's like not, not necessarily everyone is an ideas person. And like, there are going to be people there who are just like the workhorses, you know, anytime you're like, I want to play this matchup. They're just like, yeah, I have that deck built. I'm ready. You know? And like, they'll play the deck very well or whatever, but maybe they're not the one coming up with ideas. And it's like, you need those people, but then when it comes time to like make a decision, uh, you know, they're, they're not the person to be like calling those shots either. So they just go along with someone who historically has been correct. You know? Yeah. Like another one or a small example of maybe doing this on a smaller scale is like, if you're just playing games with one of your friends on a specific matchup that you're practicing, like play 10 games and then switch sides. Yeah. And you know, if the games break in a similar way, both times, you're probably onto something. Um, and if they don't like, Hey, probably has something to do with the way one of you is approaching the matchup more so than how it actually plays out in a tournament. Yeah. Or sometimes you think, you know, like you're the person who normally plays the stack and you think you play it well, and then you flip it around to the other person and then they end up like doing something different. That's better. You know, like they just see something that you didn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Playing the opposite side of matchups when I was really, let's say, at a loss for how to approach things, I found to be a really helpful exercise. So, yeah, because you you are now in their seat and you feel like the pressure points of the matchup, 
And I don't know if there's like a, a better way for me to describe that or to really hammer that home, you know, but it's just like, I don't know, say, say you're playing side A and you're like, well, I don't know, like how much this thing actually matters or whatever. Well, you, you'll figure that out playing from the other side. Yeah. You'll, you'll be able to figure out like how much you actually care about it when, when you're staring down that side of things. So. Uh, I, I think it's just important to be as well-rounded as possible so that you don't necessarily have to come to those conclusions like super late in testing overall. But again, I know that people are limited on the amount of time that they get to spend and, you know, just like resources and all, all those things. So it's, it can be hard, especially for a format like modern, but I don't know. Yeah, for me, find ways to do it. a lot of it usually is about like staying interested and like not just ending up in a point where you're just like going through the motions and playing a lot of games for the sake of playing games. So a lot of these little sub mini games, if you will, are ways I found to try to keep myself sharp. And I think it can be, it's a dangerous thing to play too many games of the same deck or the same format over and over again. And you find yourself um, just going through the motions says the man that's played creativity for months after its lifespan has concluded. Yeah. Well, we're packing that one up for now. Um, and I'll still be rooting for any creativity players over the weekend. And, um, again, cause they don't fall into that scam or the one ring field. Yeah. Um, that they're definitely, uh, it, it's, it's surprising to see that the creativity players are going to be the good guys. No, that, I dude, I was going to say that it's like the, the hero has now, or the villain has now become the hero. Yep. It's just, it wasn't that long ago when creativity was like the 12% best deck in the format, you know, 12% of the metagame share. And it was just like, oh, I hate this deck, I hate this matchup. And now there's like all these like griefs and one rings and it's like, oh, creativity, the hero we needed all along, please. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say like one of the most surprising things for me and something that if you told me this six months ago, I never would have believed you is there's not really a good Ren and Six deck. And that was a card that I thought was like oppressive and maybe too good for modern. And I don't know exactly what it was. Maybe Bowmasters like put the nail in the coffin on all the one mana creatures you get to kill with it or what have you. But it, it's really shocking that that card's not seeing more play. So, yeah, it's it's Bowmaster. That's part of it. It is, I mean, like Omnath exists, right? So like that's the one example. But the rest of it is just the arms race that's going on with one ring and like all the free spells. This is like people are either going like super under red and six or super over the top of it to the point where it's just like, this is the thing that you're doing really like you're spending like two mana to, to rebuy your fetch land or whatever. Yeah. It's just kind of comical compared to what everyone else has going on. So, yeah. And to be honest, I don't even know if there was an Omnath deck in the future match round four of the pro tour this weekend. If I would expect them to even have red and six in their deck. Uh, I mean, maybe they're just playing counter spells, you know? Who yeah. Knows? Like if you're referring to like the blue white deck as like the Omnath deck when they have two Omnaths, then yes, I agree with you. They, okay. they should not play red and six. But, well, sure. Let's just say they have Omnath in their deck and that's the extent of the information you have. Well, do they, do they have delighted halfling in their deck? Yeah, that, well, that makes it a little bit more less interesting. If they have halfling, then they're playing red and six. And if they don't, then they should not be playing it. Yeah. Just play, yeah, all the blue and white cards instead. They're all better. Do you think four colors well positioned? No. No, it, it's it's a good enemy to have 
because it is very, very beatable where it's, you know, slightly weak to the big mana stuff. It is very weak to other one ring decks with like a better end game than them. Not necessarily like late game, but just like I am going to assemble this thing that eventually kills you or whatever. And so I, I think they're they're the mark, you know? Yeah. I think that's a good deck to have be the best deck personally, but outside of the cost, right? Maybe financials aside. Yeah, like when modern decks were like a thousand dollars, that was like not great. And then this one's like, you know, fifteen hundred or whatever. Like that's definitely not good. Well, uh, well what's the one ring going for right now? I don't know that that helps anything. No, it's it's like a hundo, right? Yeah, I think. Oh no, cheaper. Hold on. Fifty bucks, forty bucks, pretty reasonable. It's come down a lot. It might be a hundred tickets still. Cause, cause that precon came out. The gift box thing. Good guy, gift box wizards giving us. Yeah, one so rings. The, yeah, it says four one rings is one eighty, and then, uh, is seventeen hundred. So yeah, it's still like fifteen hundred. Too much. Yeah, it's it is too much. It is. Too much, but also don't reprint my cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it, it's it's a lot, especially if the format's really volatile, right? Like if you're gonna make an investment of that magnitude, like you should be able to have some level of confidence that it's still gonna be reasonable in six months. And I think the fact that having a format this expensive that changes as quick as things are, I think is a dangerous combination of things. Yeah, it's bad. I, I, the upside with this sort of archetype is like, well, it's just generically good enough that I think you're able to continually play it through metagame shifts and stuff like that. But yeah. And also, I don't know, the 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 resale value does still exist. Obviously, you don't want to like take a 40% hit every time you try and trade in your decks or whatever, but still going to maintain some value at least. But yeah, yeah, it's sort of frustrating as a best deck for a lot of the same reasons we're, we're talking about where it's like, what, what do you sideboard against this deck? You know, you don't, it's just, you have to have a very good inherent plan against it. But for the most part, it is functioning like a junk deck. Yeah. No fun, but I'm very excited for this weekend and I can't wait to see what people do against it. Yeah, me too. Uh, any any other hot takes before we get the hell out of here? Yeah, no crazy hot takes. I'm, I'll say I'm super excited to watch the coverage all weekend. Real excited to see Cedric in the booth. Um, I want to let everybody know I was pushing real hard for a co-stream. Uh, you seem to come up with some real last-minute conflict that Listen. I've yet to <laughs> confirm or deny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe next time. Hey, you know, uh, sometimes a convenient excuse just pops up. And it was a thing that has been on my calendar for a while. And I just didn't really put it together. That it was the same weekend as the pro tour. So. Yeah. So let me tell you that. Let me ask you this. You wish you were there at the pro tour. Yeah. No, no, no last minute itches to play. Well, I'm not qualified, but also no, no. Sometime soon. We'll get you back there. It's listen, you, I think, you know, my reasons. Listen, do it for the people, Jerry. I get it. I do. I understand. 
maybe maybe someday I will get there. Uh, I am down to do uh, a Pro Tour co-stream for sure. And this would have actually been an awesome one to do it because I was legit excited for it. And then I just have this thing, unfortunately. But I think that is a thing that we can do in the future. So there's that. If, for some reason, people were interested in me, like, co-streaming on, like, the Wednesday after the Pro Tour or whatever, I could probably do that, too. But that's kind of weird. Yeah, well, let's see how the games go, right? We'll see how exciting it is. And if things play out as exciting as I hope they do, maybe that's something we can do. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll keep that in mind. Uh, a- anything else? I'm good. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm good too. So since since I'm going to be gone, it also means that I <laughs> probably won't be able to watch much of this, unfortunately. But uh, we'll probably, I'm I'm definitely going to be checking coverage and like looking at deck lists and stuff, and then we'll probably watch vods, but just won't be able to catch it live. Cool. Yeah. Other than that, game. Good luck.